Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, listeners. This is the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show bringing you big ideas and insights from some of the most exciting thinkers in global culture. I'm Vas Christodoulou, the producer of the series and one of the curators of our live stream events program. This week's guest is The Times columnist, screenwriter and author Catelyn Moran, who joined Hannah McInnes last month to tell us all about More Than a Woman, her hilarious new book, Celebrating Middle Age. Catelyn Moran, thank you very, very much for joining us. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So I should ask at the beginning, how are you and how are you feeling? I think you're in London, so you're going into tier three tomorrow. Do you find lockdowns? How do you find them? Some people say that a writer's life doesn't change all that much. Yeah, I mean, I live in this room anyway. This is my spare room and my office. So I've got all my plans for my next projects here. I've got the dog under the chair there. And this is exactly what my life is like. Anyway, I just sit in this room on this chair and I type. And then once a day, I take the dog for a walk. So obviously, the horrible misery and terror and suffering I'm very much aware of. Uh, but on my day-to-day uh, sort of schedule, literally nothing has changed. Like we could lift lockdown. Lockdown comes, lockdown goes. I'm still just sitting on this chair. That's your notes for your new book, did you say? Yeah, I'm writing my next book now. I've decided to do sci-fi. I suddenly got angry about sci-fi. First of all, I realised that um, I was talking to a single friend of mine and she was saying that every time you go on a date these days, within about 20 minutes when you're talking to a man, he'll start telling you about the great idea he's got for an episode of Black Mirror. And every man's got one of these. And everyone is the same, which is that tech is really bad and the future's going to be bad. And I suddenly thought sci-fi is dominated by men and about sort of sadness and dystopias and terror of the future. And I was like, why don't we write books about the future that are utopian and brilliant? So it's called Husband Material, and it's about women who decide that they can't find men, and time is getting on, and they're sort of in their late 30s, early 40s, so they decide to start making perfect robot husbands, and the consequences that stem from that are amusing. I am your reader. I need to read that book. So you start this book with the end of How to Be a Woman in September 2010. And you feel exhausted, this is your words, exhausted and jubilant. You've chronicled the most difficult years of a woman's life, 13 to 30. The worst bit is over. You're ready to enjoy the next epoch, the beginning of your true great life, full of empty weeks and amazing hobbies. But it didn't turn out like that. So what happened? And is that primarily why you're back with this? Upside down. Yes, yeah. And whenever someone does that list, I then always want to do a hollow laugh at the end of it. Yeah, I thought that my middle age would be easy. <laughs> no. 
I think when you get to your early 30s, you presume, and with quite a lot of evidence, that you must have done the hard bit. You've gone from like a child to a woman. You have gone through uh, puberty and menstruation and masturbation, you know, sort of bad love affairs, maybe an eating disorder, kind of, you know, body dysmorphia. You find out what good friends are, what bad friends are. You may have had a human being or two come out of your vagina, uh, which still is an impractical thing and I wish we would stop asking women to do it and you get to your sort of your 30s and you're like well I must have done the hard bit like it's all going to be sweet from now on I'm going to have a leisurely life I'm going to wear a really beautiful cream coloured linen suit I'm going to go for long brunches with my girlfriends it's going to be so fucking elegant and sweet and then you get to your middle age and you realise it's not that at all um, because even though you might be sorted the lives of everyone around you tend to implode this is the age where your parents start getting older and you're having to look after them. They're becoming frail. They might be, you know, starting to suffer with dementia or needing help. Uh, you've got possibly teenage children of your own whose own lives are exploding. Uh, you've got friends who are divorcing. Uh, you're trying to keep a relationship going after decades. And suddenly you realise that you, you know, any reasonably sorted middle-aged woman will become the fifth emergency service. You're the one that people are ringing up going, what do I do? And you have to have some kind of fucking clue. And you can't be... It's been an amazing time for women's writing and telling women's stories over the last decade. And I have loved this explosion of stories about younger women, which, you know, I, I wrote about in my book, when you're a hot mess and it's all about booze and sex and masturbation and craziness and being a bit of a hot mess. But you realise the next stage of your life is something that I haven't yet seen chronicled in feminist literature or female literature, which is what do you do after you've been a hot mess? When you can't be a hot mess anymore, where you really do have to be the person who's got their shit together and sorting this stuff out. And you're still the same idiot inside, but you can't be that anymore. You have to turn into something else. You have to become some kind of organisational terminator. And obviously that's in equal parts annoying and heartbreaking and deeply hilarious. Organisational terminator is a brilliant phrase, but it's particularly <laughs> in a way to see we're doing this for Zoom in your home, because actually in many ways that's where the action happens in, in your book. And also so much of the, the stuff that you describe that you feel is kind of kept secret. So it's sort of a place of untold stories for, for middle-aged women or, and for families of middle-aged women, but not in a sort of sacrosanct way. Why do you think those stories aren't being told? As you say, there is an explosion of kind of young female oversharing at the moment. Yes, no, I became increasingly aware that we don't shine the spotlight in the house or that we think the things that happen in the house are dull and small and inconsequential and that big adventures are things that happen outside you know when you're out and about and you're in nightclubs you're out on the streets or you know when you're killing dragons or kind of going on some kind of ring quest but stories and adventures just as big as those things that we see in movies and in films uh, and in books are happening inside the house you know if you are a parent you are, you know, life and death is often in your hands. Like people's souls are in your hands. People's hearts are being broken and you need to mend them. You are the fabric of society holding everything together. And, you know, it, it's part of the way that we still haven't really started to chronicle women's lives, that we have just thought that, oh, everything that happens in the house is boring. You would need to leave the house to have an adventure or have a crisis or save someone's life. No, it will happen in your front room. It will happen on your stairs. It will happen in your bathroom at two o'clock in the morning. Everything that happens in the world can also happen in your house. And you're right. And I shouldn't have said sort of overshare. Some say, some would call it overshare. More, more an age of openness in many ways. And people um, are sort of freer to talk, feel freer to talk about their vulnerabilities and, and their foibles. But really interesting reading your book that perhaps you're right. So for middle-aged women, that is just not the case. And there are things, I wonder if, if you feel there are things that you're announcing to the world 
for the first time in this book that you've experienced. And, and, you know, that's extraordinary that you're doing that now in a way. Yeah. I mean, it's nuts, but, but you realize it, it, it's kind of like getting your eye in, like you kind of, you become aware of your life and you start going, I've not seen this written about. So like, you know, silly things like I write in the book about how uh, I realized that I was having some kind of physical phenomena that I'd never seen chronicled anywhere, which is that I would go and have a lovely bath and I would enjoy relaxing in my bath. I would be listening to Melvin Bragg. I'd be enjoying my time. I would get out. I would dry myself. I would get dressed. And then about five minutes later, about 500 milliliters of lukewarm bath water would come out of my fanoon. And I was like, well, either I am a genuine one-off medical freak and it's only happening to me. I have some kind of weird capillary action within me. Maybe I just have a very absorbent uterus. All this is happening to other women and no one's ever talked about it ever. And I took a flyer on it one night when I was on stage in front of 2,000 people and we were just talking and I just suddenly thought, I'm going to ask. And I just described this and then turned to the audience and went, does this happen to anyone else? And there was a silence for a second, quite a shock silence. And then about half of the audience just went, ah, yes, hands up. Yes, me. Yes, I recognize me. It was notably the half of the audience that looked like they might have had a vaginal birth, I have to say. It was kind of like the women who were confused about this, uh, the people who tend not to have pushed a whole human out of them. They're like, no, I don't, I don't leak bath water after I've been in the bath. I'm like, well, enjoy that. <laughs> enjoy, enjoy, enjoy the solidity and non-leakiness of your pants. <laughs> you must feel when you're writing, just thinking you can hear those silent voices of women everywhere going, thank goodness it's not just me. And I mean, one of the other things you write about that's a, what you call the biggest unspoken truth is that if a woman wants children and a job, a woman's life is essentially only as good as the man she marries. Yes. As succinctly uh, uh, summed up in the, the motto which every woman needs to know, which is don't marry a cunt. It's the most important thing. You must not do that. I know it seems obvious, but you've got to track that through because without exception, because when you get to 45, it's like you started living through an experiment. You look around your social circle and without exception, the female friends that I've got that are thriving in their careers and doing well and are happy have husbands or partners that do at least 50% of all the emotional labor and the domestic work and the child rearing. And without exception, all the friends I've got who are not doing well in their careers and are sad and resentful and tired are the ones who've got partners who do less than 50%. And of course, you know, and it seems really obvious when you say this, but like, if you've got you know, we would think a man who did 48% of the childcare and the, the domestic stuff, you'd be like, well, he's a good guy. He's nearly, you know, he's nearly there. He's nearly halfway up. But that's an extra 2% that you've got on your toboggan of duty that you're dragging behind you. And you become increasingly aware at this age that all you've got is time. And if someone is literally time vampiring your life because you're having to sort out their shit and they're not taking their half of the burden, then you, you can kind of feel yourself slowly dying. You can feel, <laughs> just feel that life being fannied away, just going, why am I having to do more than you why what doesn't make sense why but do you think that middle age is then synonymous with having children do you think the book is for people with children is that the main sort of part of the kind of burden or for you the feeling of what middle age is no uh no definitely not um i've written before about how one of the things i find most vexing about being a woman is this presumption that you should have children that that's that a woman's story will always include that at some point that that's the bit that you're working towards there'll be a wedding and then there'll also be some babies and that's so baked into us that that's what happens the big things that will always happen in a woman's life according to all the stories and all the movies and all the books is that uh, at some point she'll in her teens or early 20s she'll have a makeover that's a pivotal moment. And then there'll be a wedding. That's a pivotal moment. And then there'll be some babies. And then after that, I don't know, your vagina are trophies and you die. Like kind of, 
So I wanted to, you know, that was one of the reasons that I wanted to go into middle age and, and, and sort of go, there is more to it than vaginal atrophying in death. Uh, you know, there's, there's that to look forward to. Uh, so I'm very much not that that needs to be a part, but I was writing about my life. Yeah. And it's certainly the thing that complicates it because I'm constantly astonished at how motherhood is both seen as this huge thing, like the, the most important thing, the defining things of a woman's life, but still not really talked about and completely underestimated in the impact that it has on you. Like you making a human and keeping it alive for the rest of its life and trying to make it sane and pleasant and amusing and, you know, and for it to enjoy its life is a, a more than 24 hour a day job. So it doesn't, it, it doesn't even work to have one. And once you've got two, like if you're literally into quantum physics, like how am I doing this? And you get to the end of every day going, I don't know how I did that. I, I literally don't understand what I have done today or how I've got here now. It was, I went into a whirlwind and a blur and I think they're all still alive and I'm so tired, but I don't understand what my day was. What was it? I mean, I'll come back. I want to come back to it a bit later and you do write incredibly beautifully about sort of having children and the kind of overwhelming love you, you have for them and all that goes with that. But I, I just wanted to talk about one of the other parts of the book that I found just the part that I most wanted people to, to go away and read. So last time I spoke to you, I thought I was being really original asking you about men because I thought, oh, it's so clever to ask her about men. Anyway, I've now read that since writing How to Be a Woman, a book about women and feminism, there's one question you've been asked more than any other, which was that question, what about the men? So and this, initially you were quite dismissive of that as a question, but you explore it in, in, in real depth and a whole chapter. What about the men in this, in this book? So what changed? What, what did you, what made you want to explore that? What did you sort of learn through your exploration? Yeah. Well, initially I was quite peeved when people would ask it. Cause it was just like, I've specialized in a thing. I mean, it's like asking the horse racer why they haven't also talked about dogs. It's like, I'm a horse person. I don't do dogs. I was like, I've done women. That's my thing. And also it would be the ultimate irony of feminism. If women, having solved all the problems of women, were then told to solve all the problems of men. It was like, eh. So I, I don't think women should have to feel that they should do feminism and solve the problems of men. But I was like, you know, after 10 years, I was like, fuck it, I'll give it a go. And I'd noticed several things. One of them was, I went on Twitter a couple of years ago and just went, I'm always talking about the problems of women. Lovely men out there, tell me what's difficult about being a man. And I was genuine in my inquiry, but I wasn't expecting the breadth or the depth or the devastating, in some cases, uh, instances that were cited. So there'd be funny stuff like men going, uh, if my wife is feeling frisky and wishes to seduce me or impress me, she can dress up in some sexy clothes and like kind of look all sexy and stuff. And that's a nice thing. We're doing that together and that's all good. But if I wanted to be sexy for my wife, what options have I got? All I've got is a posing pouch from Anne Summers that says, beware of the beast on the front of it. And and that's weird because that's making fun of my genitals. And I was like, yeah, it is quite funny. I would, and also I would find it quite arousing if someone wore a beware of the beast pair of pants. But I was like, but yeah, you know, if you know, if you flip reverse that, if women were only sold underwears that made fun of our fannies and tits, we'd get quite peeved. And that's quite a weird thing that we're not, you know, men aren't allowed to be sexy and lovely and attractive. And then in the sort of beauty thing, it was, I sort of broke them down into categories. It was things about not being joyful. So it seemed that there was limits to the joy in men's lives. So one man was going, I'd really like it if someone bought me flowers. Like no one's ever bought me flowers. And at first I was like, <laughs> 
Well, we're dealing with female genital mutilation and unequal pay. So, oh, okay, I haven't got any daisies. Um, but then it was like, but no, that is weird because flowers is nature. Like the world makes flowers and beautiful things. Why is only half the population supposed to enjoy them and love them and be given them? That's weird. So there were all these sort of recurring things that men weren't supposed to be joyful, but you know, the clothes that they wear don't allow you to reinvent yourself or express yourself. It's just some brown trousers or some blue trousers. And then we started to get onto deeper things like uh, men going, it breaks my heart that if I'm in a playground and a child falls over or is lost, I would feel that I could not go and help that child because people would be suspicious of me and I would have to go away and find a woman and get her to look after that child. And that started to really blow my mind because I hadn't really thought there would be such a thing as female privilege, but I realised that in this instance and maybe some others there is because I've always taken it for granted that I don't scare people and that I can help people. And that's, that is a privilege. That's a, a really innate thing. All humans want to help each other and to suddenly find that you can't do that, that you're seen as a weapon or a threat. And then when you refract it through race as well, like kind of, you know, if you're black or brown, that, you know, you're seen as even more threatening. You know, a little boy at, you know, 10, 11 could still go and help someone. As soon as he puts on a foot, his voice breaks. And, you know, if he's got darker skin, he would just be instantly seen as a threat, would never be able to help anyone. So it was it was really, I mean, it went on for weeks. I was getting so many replies. And I just started to think about how if feminism is supposed to be about the belief in the political, social, financial and sexual equality between the sexes, there was just as much gender bullshit for men having to be a stereotypical man and live within the gender confines of being a man as there is for women. It, you know, these, these firm gender beliefs that we have about what a man is and what a woman is, is screwing us both over. And the only mechanism that I can think that would be able to interrogate that and start supplying some questions is feminism. Like kind of that's, that's, we've got this brilliant network set up that we've been running for a century now that allows us to go in and interrogate problems that are to do with gender and offer solutions. Let's use it for men as well. And that that can only be to our benefit. Like, you know, so many of the problems that women have is men having to be stereotypically male in the, in the way that that affects us. So let's use this for everyone, man. Like God, feminism is really useful now. This is going to work for everyone. This is, this is so good. It's like when you find that you can use vinegar to get lime scale off a tap. You're like, I can put it on chips and get lime scale off a tap. This vinegar is useful. And feminism, I think, is maybe like vinegar. It's for men and women. Everyone frantically scribbling down that you can use vinegar. I did not know that. And but I mean, it's your, it's your brother, Andrew, who, who sends you off essentially on this by saying that I think feminism has gone too far. And I mean, to be honest, has Andrew read this? Because I think he drives you mad. I mean, you say, to be honest, I'm quietly furious with Andrew for being Andrew. And he sort of steals your slippers and, and essentially quietly seems to drive you quite mad. But he shows you some important things, perhaps, which really, you know, informed a lot of your writing. So just how different women and men are, bewilderingly different you two, but perhaps in general. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like it was a very neat uh, narrative device that he ended up in my life. Like in a movie, if you wanted to challenge a middle-aged feminist and allow them to go on a crazy journey of self-discovery, uh, you'd stick basically a teenage man's rights activist in her house who she's related to and can't throw out because otherwise he'll starve. So I just had to kind of have this virulent anti-feminist in my fucking house, eating my fucking cheese and wearing my fucking slippers. And I had to try and work out how he could feel like he did and say the things that he did when he has five sisters and he was living in my house and saw the reality of my existence and saw the reality of the existence of my teenage daughters. And so it was in the end useful. 
Um, but no, he'll never read it. He would, he would never read a book by a woman. <laughs> he'll never read that book. That was why I was able to say that his coat was quite smelly. I was like, you know what? He'll never know about that insult. He'll, he'll never read a book by a woman. He only reads books about Red Dwarf and Dungeons and Dragons. So I, I feel pretty safe. I've, I've hidden all the truth in a book about feminism. He won't go anywhere near it. Oh, I've got this partly, I've got this wish that we could do this. I've done this event with sort of all your family. I would have liked Pete there, Andrew there, all the, all the people in the book could be sort of chipping <laughs> in. Um, but so, so one of the obviously huge, the really important things you write about all the way through is sort of beauty and, and bodies. And you say that there'll be no world peace while 50% of the population feels bad about having a body. And I, th- I think it's, you know, 97% of women, 3% of women are happy with their bodies I mean you have a very solutionist way of looking at a lot of things I wish we could go through the book with all the sort of your solutions but but do you you know what's your solution to that to that it sort of feels like a problem that can never be dealt with well I mean I'm I'm so lucky I'm one of the three percent I am really really happy with my body but then I've had a different narrative than the one you're supposed to have like kind of the common narrative is that the best time in your life to have a body is between the ages of 15 and like 30 when you're all perky and slim and you have solid thighs and you don't have a wattle and you don't have wrinkles and like kind of and everything's good and then it's all downhill from there so you just have to enjoy having a body in your young years and then just again look forward to your atrophied vagina and death later on my journey has been completely different because I was a very big very unhappy teenage girl completely disassociated from her body Um, and I didn't do anything with it and I abused it and I I had problems around food and overeating comfort eating and gradually I have learned to love my body like I think going through the first very difficult birth you know where I very nearly died and getting to the end of that and not dying and waking up the next day and looking at my body and just suddenly going oh mate like thanks for getting us through that and that was shit and I think I'm on your side now like I know where you are and I'm going to try and look after you because that was horrible and we didn't like that did we and I feel like you deserve some you know I'm gonna, I'm gonna I just started patting my legs like a horse and going well done guys you've you've always been so reliably leggy and like thanks for that and then arms well done for being arms and just became aware of the voice in my head like I think this is the pivotal part in your life you can mark your life into two phases and some people never get to the second phase and the pivotal point is when you realize that you have a voice in your head that is talking to you all the time and that you are in control of that voice in your head because I think most of us don't even think about it the way that we learn to think the way that we learn languages you know if you fall over your mum will go oh have we fallen over oh and oh and we're sad and now we're going to come over here we're going to make it better and that's how you start to work out who you are and how you feel about things and depending on how you're parented and then depending on what friends you have and then what teachers you have and then what boyfriends you have they all slowly tell you who you are and become the voice in your head because I know whenever I talk to my female friends so many of them will say the voice in my head is saying oh you lazy bitch oh you silly cow oh you're so ugly oh you fucked it up again like kind of like you know you're too much you're not enough and the moment where you realize that you can now take control of that voice in your head and decide to be kind to yourself and when I learned that as a concept, I still couldn't do it. I still couldn't talk to myself. So what I had to do was introduce a proxy who at that point was Lorraine Kelly, because I just thought Lorraine Kelly would be lovely to me. If I put Lorraine Kelly in my head and imagine what Lorraine Kelly would say to me, she'd be quite nice, wouldn't she? So I had Lorraine in there for about six months. And then gradually I learned to copy what Lorraine would say. Lorraine would be like, oh, you've worked so hard today. Well done. 
you're probably quite tired, aren't you? Why don't you have a lovely baked potato? Because I think you deserve it. And then pop yourself in bed with your electric blanket because you've been a good girl today. And I gradually learned to be kind to myself through the medium of Lorraine Kelly. I went on her show to talk about this book and I told her this. Obviously, she was very chuffed and she'd read the book and she really loved it. And then right at the end, so it's like breakfast TV. I've been given this huge riot act about the appropriate language to use at 8.30 on ITV. And right at the very end of the interview, Lorraine Kelly just shouts, and anyway, reclaim the vagina, hurrah! No, no, shit, no, sorry. She says, no, reclaim the vulva, because I talk about how you've got to use the word vulva instead of vagina. Reclaim the vulva, hurrah! So I'm already very shocked, but then when I look at it afterwards, the subtitler had not known what the fuck she was saying and had gone, reclaim the Volvo! (laughs) (laughs) I did Part of hearing or just using the subtitles that must, morning must have been so confused as to what Lorraine's agenda was, what my agenda was. But then I started to think like a Volvo is very much like a Volvo. It's very reliable. You fit a lot of people in the back. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You can't be so funny because every time I laugh really loudly, I take the screen off you and probably, <laughs> probably fine with that. punchline cut off, I'm afraid. I must learn to laugh more quietly. Um, I don't know where I was going to go then, but... Talking about beauty, that's what we were talking about. Um, I mean, your daughter articulates it. One of her worries is she goes out and she wears makeup and she comes back to you and her friends have said, oh, you're a feminist. You you, you shouldn't be wearing makeup. And there are all these sorts of things, you know, as a feminist, should we, you know, be able to freely feel that it's fine to want to dye our hair and, and, you know, shave our legs? If we were all free-spirited feminists, would we not want to do those things? Because in a way... You know, I think many of us feel quite sorry for men that they they can't do those things. We want to embrace them. Yeah, I mean, it's just there as an. I mean, one of the great things about uh, the rise of social media, people generally don't talk about the great things about social media, is that on Instagram when it first came along, people were worried that it was dominated by images of female perfection. I can remember there being a big hoo ha about three years ago, going maybe it just needs to be regulated because all we're seeing is very skinny, white blonde girls sort of showing off their beautiful abs and stuff. And then, as is often the case young people sorted this shit out on their own. Loads of teenage girls started going on there and posting pictures of themselves, whatever their body shape, whatever their body type, with their stretch marks, with their rolls, just going, I'm beautiful, here I am. And you see now that the body positivity accounts on Instagram are the ones that are rising the fastest. So we live in an era where we have more, the lexicon of what is acceptable to be a female has grown. So if you want to, you know, do nothing and be completely natural, that's completely your choice. But if you want to do something, like I kind of see it as a creative thing. And also I noticed that a lot of the, you know, there's definitely a section of feminists who, when they say you should just be naturally beautiful and not wear makeup, they tend to be naturally beautiful. Uh, They tend to have amazing cheap hats and like incredible structure and like really good skin. And so it's great for them to go off and be naturally beautiful. But, you know, if you want to like learn a skill and improve yourself or change yourself or turn yourself into something else, why should you not be able to acquire a skill and invent yourself? And I'm, I think the, the key always to, to anyone's happiness is being able to go, what me could I invent that I will love? Because we're here for such a short amount of time. And I think it's often easier rather than going, OK, I need to overcome all of the signals that society is giving me and everything that's happened within the last 10,000 years of human society and just learn to accept myself. That's quite a long project if you are due to leave the house in half an hour, like kind of like, you know, or you could just come up with a solution that just makes you feel really happy and it's really quick and it'll cost you 20 quid in rimmel makeup. Like I'm allowing you to have that option. If you don't want to change all of society, 
you can put on some eyeliner and no one will die. You're right. What you say, I think the people who tend to sort of do a no makeup selfie are the people who, <laughs> you know, look ridiculously nice. You're like, that would never happen. I mean, one of the bits of advice isn't really a question. I'm just thanking you for a wonderful bit of advice in the book that you might want to expand on, which is whatever age you are, you say, and whatever's happening in your life right now, one thing is constant. Older you is totally perving on you at the moment. Enjoy it. Yes. That is, it's, it's, I've been thinking about that a lot. Yeah, you will spend your entire life. You, growing older is realising that every couple of years you'll just scroll through the pictures on your camera or look through a photo album and just go, my God, seven years ago I was insanely hot. And then in seven years' time, you'll do that about you now. The other thing I've noticed about getting older is that when you're younger and you're looking through photo albums, you're going, oh, what happened to him? Or, God, I haven't seen her for ages. When you get to about 45, you start going, oh, God, what happened to that cardigan? That was really good. Why didn't I keep it? Why did I throw those boots away? I really miss them. They would complete an outfit I have now. Why did I give them away? Never throw anything away. All fashion comes back round within seven years. Just stick it all in a bag in the loft and you will end up wearing it about six different occasions in your life and when different cycles come around in fashion. I, I said at the beginning that, you know, I, I, I wept a lot and there was there's, that's not just at the part I'd like to talk about now. That's through, throughout and you talk about a, love a lot love of your husband you, you know you describe it all very beautifully if amusingly but one of the parts of the book that you know an agonizing time in your life that you write about was obviously your daughter going through some very difficult mental illness and she told you to write about it I know but I wonder what apart from that made you want to share the story well, first of all, I should say that she is now completely recovered. Thank God. Uh, just as we were so lucky because the stats are with an eating disorder that roughly a third of kids will get better. Totally. A third will become functionally better. So they'll still have issues around food. They might be orthorexic. You know, they might be very picky. They might still limit the amount, but they, you know, enough to function. And a third don't recover. And at all they remain ill and it has the highest uh, mortality rate of any psychiatric illness I mean and I knew all of this when she started to show symptoms of it and it was the thing I was most terrified of I had been terrified of eating disorders and anorexia since I'd seen the Karen Carpenter story when I was 10 because I just knew how brutal it was and it seemed to me as a child and then it did again when I was a mother dealing with it like demonic possession like like the thing, the, the girl that you love has been overtaken by the darkest, bleakest thing and it hates you and it hates itself and there's no way to get through it or around it. It's in your house every day. And the thing with an eating disorder is obviously you should be eating at least three times a day. So three times a day there's an issue that will be a flashpoint that you as a family will probably fail at. So it's constant and then an eating disorder disrupts the sleep. So you'll be up till three or four o'clock in the morning with a very distressed child. I mean, it's it, it, however awful I thought it was when I was 10. It was a million times worse than that when I then experienced it as a parent um, in my 40s. But I wanted mainly to write about it because I fucked it up. You know, for the first couple of years, I absolutely fucked it up. I generally think I am. I'm very confident that I'm a very good mum. I'm very present, very warm. It's very chill. But on this thing, because it was the thing I was most scared of, I absolutely fucked it because I came from a family where, so an eating disorder, for those who don't know, is a thing that's based on, is built on something else. They describe it as an iceberg. So the iceberg, the bit that pokes out the top is the eating disorder. What's underneath it is anxiety and depression and, you know, often body dysmorphia or whatever. And 
I came from a family where being anxious or depressed, no one cared. If you feel sad, you feel anxious, just bite down on a shoe and carry on. And that is how I've managed to deal with all my anxiety and depression. But this was a mental illness. So this was not going away. But I used all the tactics that I had used on my, you know, just normal depressions and anxieties to try and deal with the mental illness. So we would try and be jolly. You know, she'd come through the door and be like, let's play Buckaroo. And oh, we can go and watch High School Musical. And then, well, oh, well, I bought you some pet rats and I'll give you a foot massage. It'd be lovely. That didn't work. I tried to be very rational about it. I would sit and give TED Talks until two o'clock in the morning on the edge of her bed talking about nutrition and and medieval nuns who starved themselves and the hallucinations they had, like thinking I could like reason her out of it and factor out of it. And her vibe was very much, fuck off Wikipedia. I, I am sad. I, this is not helping me. Uh, we tried being angry. Um, we tried crying. I thought if she saw how upset I was, then maybe that would be the thing that would make her realise how bad this was. None of that worked. And it carried on being terrible until I went and got some therapy and I could finally look her in the eye and go, I can see what is happening. I can say what is happening. You are scared and sad and upset and depressed and anxious. And I'm not scared of that. And I am going to stay with you until you get better. And it seems like such a tiny, obvious, simple sequence of things to say to someone. But I had not said them. And as soon as I said them, it was like a key that unlocked it. Just being able to say what I saw. It's the first rule with teenagers or anyone who's distressed. Say what you see, then let them talk. Tell them you're not scared about it and then tell them you're going to be with them all the way through. And it's astonishing. I'm now so twitchy when I see other parents who are not doing that with their kids. I feel like I've heard conversations on buses. I see people in restaurants and stuff and I just want to run over to them and go, you need to say what you see. Say, I can see you are sad. Because so many people don't want to say it. It feels like you failed. Like all that, all that you might point it out to your child for the first time and suddenly then they would become sad. No, it's there in front of you. Say it. So easy. And that's the start of it getting better. So that was when it started to get better. There was also an amazing book, if anybody out there is dealing with this, by Eva Musby, which I think is just called Coping with Eating Disorders. It's the only book she's written, Eva Musby. And she gives you scripts of what to say when you are with a child um, who is ill, which is so vital because you're often dealing with someone who is incredibly emotional and often violent and very distressed and in the heat of the moment you can panic or not know what to say and these are scripts that you just say and they are magic they were transformative for us so from a combination of me finally getting my ass into gear and being able to say what was happening and getting this book she thankfully made a full recovery but the reason she wanted me to write about it is because as she pointed out for her generation mental illness is not stigmatized in the way it was for my generation they talk about it my generation doesn't, but we're the generation that has to help this generation get better. And she was like, you just need to write about what happened so that your generation can help us. Because at the moment, you guys do not know what the fuck you are doing. And we are the ones that are suffering. So put it in a book. And uh, and the response I've had since we, we sort of extracted it um, in the Times and I've had the, we had the biggest postbag I've ever had on anything from it. So many families going yes, I, this is the description of exactly what is happening. I had not known this. I did not know to do this. This is revelationary. Thank you so much. And I think it is possibly the most useful thing that I've ever written, which is ultimately I like to amuse people and I like to make people feel better. But the thing I want to do most is to be useful. And so that is my favourite thing that I've ever been able to do. I think it's, I mean, there's, it's indisputably useful because as you say, you know, the language around it, the, the sort of 
ways of dealing that isn't there, which is why I would kind of correct you when you say you messed it up, because really, I don't think there's any blueprint for getting it right. So I don't think anyone could immediately know. But I mean, do, do you, you, you've obviously thought about it, you know, discussed it with your daughter at great length as well. Do you have thoughts about why it is, if it's, you know, more prevalent amongst young girls? And you talked about the positives of social media, but how much of a driver of mental health issues do you think that is? They still don't know everything about eating disorders, but what they uh, know generally is that one third of it is a genetic predisposition to mental illness, which definitely runs in my family. One third of it will be some kind of inciting incident, like moving to a new school or being teased for your weight or falling out with a friendship group or something that sort of traumatic and destabilizes you. And then one third of it is societal. So it's, you know, once you've lined all those ducks up in a row, you're, you know, you're, you're in a bad situation, but that seems to be the mix. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, I know, I know, as I wrote in the book, like, you know, when, when she first got ill, I was like, fuck this society and fuck Instagram and fuck all this perfection and all these bikinis and selfies and stuff. Like there has never been a worse time to be a girl. There is so much pressure on you to be beautiful. And then I remember what it felt like being in 1986 when there was no internet and I still had exactly the same pressure. I knew exactly what I was supposed to look like. You know, I knew exactly what, I mean, I, I did not think because all of society was telling me that I, you know, of course I hated my body when I was 16 because you didn't see any bodies like mine anywhere. And whenever there was a fat girl in a movie, everyone would just go, ugh. So, you know, you're watching that at the age of six or seven and you go, okay, what I have is bad. Like, I'm, I'm a bad thing. I'm a bad baggage walking around. I have no value. People will go, ugh, when they see me. It's that simple. When you're a kid or a teenager, you're just looking for things that look like you and seeing how society responds to them. And then you make your calculations as to your value and your worth and what your life is going to be like off the back of that, which is why, even though there are obviously bad things about social media, I, the fact that anybody can go out there and post a picture and go, here I am and I love this, is one of the biggest changes that I've seen in my, in my lifetime and, and only for the better and only for the good because no one could do that before. Unless I had walked down the street naked going, here I am and it's brilliant. There was no way I could have changed society. But now any girl can just take a picture in a room and put it up in there and immediately everyone's going, oh, Queen, you're so beautiful, you're so amazing. That's magic. What a beautiful thing we've invented. You know, it wasn't invented for that, but a load of young girls went, okay, that's what we're going to use it for. And it, that, that gives me constant and eternal joy and hope. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
I suppose social media, Twitter feeds into the thing I want to ask you about next before I, I must ask, I must go on to questions. But you, I think it's in the chapter, you say the hour we remember, don't eat your sisters. Yes. And, you know, really the biggest problem that you write about for women is actually other women. I mean, is it, uh, yeah, we, we spoke to Madeleine Albright on this program who said, you know, there's a special place in health, women who don't help other women. And it's such an important message. It feels like almost the thing that most halts and stifles kind of progress is the fact that, you know, we're not, women are perhaps not all in this together. But do you think that, or, or you know, putting each other down, do you think that sort of shaming and trashing, as you call it, is essentially fueled again by, by Twitter? I mean, it, it, that's where it happens. Twitter just allows that to happen. I mean, the things that you need to remember, I mean, obviously, I mean, no, I wrote in How to Be a Woman that we have to remember that this whole thing about how you must always support all women, like kind of obviously that's an admirable sentiment, but at the same time, feminism isn't Buddhism. Like you don't have to love everybody. That's quite a tall task. And again, something we're not asking men to do. I'm always like, I've always got a little radar going off. Going, Are we asking men to do this? That's how you know it's a sexist bullshit. Men aren't being told to support all men. Men would go, how would I do that? I've never met all of them. Some of them are dicks. That literally applies to women being told to support all women. So, but at the same time, you need to be aware of what it is that you hate about women and where, you know, bitching with some friends about someone you hate is absolutely fine. No, no, no badness will happen there. If you're going onto a social media platform and talking about aspects of women that you find objectionable or things that women do that you disapprove of, as I put in the book, it's like farting in a spacesuit because you, you know, you think you're just expelling some air, but it's, it's trapped in there. You are the environment that women live in. Women talking about women is the environment that all women live in. And so when we pick on aspects of women that we don't like, you know, in five years time, you might be doing the exact thing that this woman is doing. Don't fuck your future self. Like kind of, it's, it's, it's fine not to have an opinion publicly. You can just bitch with your friends privately. And in that way, that's the gentlewoman's, the gentlewoman's way of hating women. You just do it privately with your friends in a bitching circle. That's correct. I mean, can I just ask that I said you were a, um, a solutionist. I actually had to look that word up, but it does exist. It is a real word, isn't it? I don't know, but I like it. I mean, I, I know what it means. I'm solutioning. Yeah, you, you know, you, you find solutions. And through this book, you find, you know, you're looking for quite big social solutions to quite big, big problems. So I know one of them, which we don't have the time to necessarily go into, is the idea of paying carers, you know, better carers, women, mothers to, to look after their children. When you're writing these things, do you think society can kind of get there? I mean, maybe you should, do you ever think I'm just going to become a politician prime minister and kind of give these things a push along i would be a terrible politician but i believe in the beauty of writing books is that i look at what douglas adams did seems weird but bear with um in hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy where he describes in that a small portable electronic device which allows you to access all the information in the world and will translate everything for you that's the iphone and he came comic novel in 1979 so when you're a writer, you're just putting ideas out there that people who are more organisational and have less fruity and colourful pasts uh, could then maybe go and, uh, you know, use in a political career. I mean, the idea that I love the most in there, because I do love, I will never talk about a problem unless I have a solution, because otherwise you're just moaning and whining and that we don't have time for that. I'm 45. Uh, all my readers are very busy. Uh, my favourite idea that was in there was the women's union, which I think is the best way that we could possibly affect uh, political change. Because whenever we talk about getting women into politics, just because of the structure of politics, the hours, the location of it, the culture that's already there, it's still very hard to, you know, we're still decades away from having equal representation of women in, in, in business and in, in politics. If we had a women's union, 
that women could join that would represent a huge voting bloc that would be very well informed, that could be brought in to consult on policy. That's something that every woman can take part in. You know, you could spend, you know, 10 minutes a year being part of the women's union. You might not have to spend any time at all. You just pay your dues and let them do what they need to do, which is represent and advocate for women. But to me, the idea of having a women's union that were there to represent women and present a huge, massive, influential and informed voting block is like the idea of mum's net, but better. <laughs> I think we, you've got to start it. Perhaps you could start it and just delegate and you could pick. I put it in the book and then every time I meet a rich or influential person, I always go, and this will be a really great idea. So I'm hoping at some point that that will sort of bear seed. Like every time I, I meet anybody who's got any influence or power or money, I just go, be great if there was a woman's union and just then try and get them really drunk so that they think they thought of it. <laughs> um, I'm just going to ask one more question of my own and then and then everyone else's. But, you know, it's a bit, it is perhaps a big question, but if it does come across in the book, we haven't talked about it. You know, you love, you found and love yoga. There's loads of things you basically, you do one of the things that's closest to my heart, which is go swimming in, in cold ponds. But do you think that the middle-aged Catelyn Moran is sort of the happier, mo- more fulfilled one of, of, of all the Catelyn Morans. Oh God, yeah. And I absolutely presume that each decade will be better because you're just learning more how to steer yourself. Like you're just born into your body and it's like, and then you just have to spend your entire life working out how to keep it happy and amuse it and like, and love it. And so, of co- you know, if you're doing life right, you should absolutely be happier every decade. All this shit's going to come at you. You know, the book's all about all the things that will get in the way of this natural progression to being happier and more content. But, you know, you can still endure. And what I really notice is that older women, so men in middle age, don't have these pressures that I catalogue in the book for the emotional labour and child rearing and looking after parents, not to the extent that women do. And so we are envious of them because we're plate spinning and they just, they're just having their career and then eating their steak and getting their blowjob. But when it comes to retirement... All the plates that women kept spinning in middle age pay off because she's now going off. She's still got her social group. She's still got her friends. She's still got her family. She's learned all these hobbies. She's got all these skills. And women in retirement blossom and have incredibly active and brilliant lives. Whereas men, you hear time and time again, once work is taken out of it, they just kind of collapse. Very often they don't know what to do. They, they've got divorced. They suddenly become lonely because they haven't kept those friendships groups going in the way that women do. So, you know, life is a long game. And like, this is the hardest bit, I think. But once you get to the other side of this, all the hard work that you're doing now pays off and you have a really glorious retirement. That's what I'm hoping for. I want to live on a self-sufficient farm in Wales. I want to have my own forge. I want to be like carrying a sheep down off the mountains on my back. Uh, and and I went and worked on a farm uh, a couple of months ago for a feature and when sheep get infected with flies and maggots in their, between their hooves, you like scrape all the maggots out with a knife and then you spray on a disinfectant spray and then they spring off or mend it again. And I was like, that's the most satisfying thing I have ever seen in my life. So I just want to be removing maggots from sheep, Hannah. That's my, I've got, got it all planned. <laughs> that sounds, yeah, go for it. As long as there's some, <laughs> there's a procedure there'll be somewhere on your farm to kind of also swim something pondy and kind of muddy as well oh yeah no the wildlife pond is all planned and there'll be a sauna right next to it because it's going to be very cold welsh water in the winter will be very cold so yeah into the pond wildlife pond swing past the herons and the the kingfishers then into the sauna and then off to my office to write that's my plan and i will write until the day i die that is the plan Oh, wonderful. Well, I'm booking in. I'd like a little cabin for me. That place too. It sounds perfect. Right. I've got to move on to um, everyone else's questions. 
Somebody will ask, you said at the beginning that someone's excited about your sci-fi-ish book with male robots. When's that coming out? Uh, I should hopefully have finished it by Easter. So maybe next September, I think, I hope. We'll see how we go. But I've already written 30,000 words of it and I love it so much. <laughs> it makes me so happy. They, they have to name all the robots different things. So the first one is a hot robot. So they call him Rob Hot because he's the hot robot. And then later on, a bit of his programming goes wrong and he really screws them over. So then they change his name to Bert Trail because he's, he's betrayed them. So these are the things that amuse me. <laughs> You'll have to come and talk about that one next then, then with us. Susan says, you're an inspirational role model for lots of us, but who do you look to apart from Lorraine Kelly for, for, for inspiration? Oh, Gosh, I mean, Audrey Lord is kind of, you know, uh, the more I read of her stuff, Virginia Woolf is always an amazing mate. I don't know why it took me so long to find her. I think I thought that she was just kind of, there's all these classic books, like people go on about Moby Dick being really difficult and dry. It's not, it's a really gay book. It's like really, he's so hot for Kukwig. It's like, it's a sexy, funny, brilliant book, which a man is trying to ram everything in. I don't know why there's this sort of reputation. It's just like a dry book about fishing. And similarly, Virginia Woolf, I just thought she was a bit snooty and she'd hate me. But as soon as I picked up A Room of One's Own, it was like, she was just there chatting to me going, hey, there's a load of shit here. How's it going in the future? And I'd be like, most of it's still here, Virginia, sorry to say. Imagine we're told everything is back to normal next year. What are the first things you're going to do? Oh, I will go and I will go and jump in a big cold pond. That's what I want to do. That's the thing I've missed the most. Um, so yeah, I will be up to um, Hampstead Ladies Ponds. Hampstead Ladies Ponds is so amazing. The first time I went there, uh, I came out in my cosy and looked out across the lake, and there was Helena Bonham Carter wearing a huge 1950s style bathing cap all covered in flowers, just doing a very elegant breaststroke and chatting to a friend. In my mind, probably with a fag in her mouth as well, but I don't think in actuality. And I was like, yeah, that this is why I moved to London. I absolutely expected this to be a city where I would see this. And now I have. That's perfect. <laughs> you branch out and comment. You have to try the serpentine as well. It's, very, it's, it's also very... Nice. I would love that. Swimming in the centre of London sounds... Is there somewhere to change there or are you just walking down Oxford Street kind of dripping and, and covered in slime? You can choose. You can either sort of just change on the bench or you can go into a very, very sort of smelly and kind of, you know, changing room with tea. Oh, but no. I'll, I'll just walk home covered in mud and use my nice shower at home. But no, I'd love to. I mean, I when I interviewed name drop uh, Benedict Cumberbatch he was saying that he'd recently uh discovered uh, cold water swimming and he always has now his swimming trunks in his bag so as he as he described it if he goes past anything bigger than a puddle um that he can just jump in and swim straight away and I since he told me that I was like that's a genuinely great idea so now I always have my swimming costume on my bag in case you suddenly go past a bit of river that you can just jump in it's uh so thanks for that Sherlock great tip Everyone's going to be on the lookout for the least conspicuous person, i.e. Benedict Cumberbatch, of jumping in. Right, um, question, for, um, is it ever stressful? This is a, a, good, a good question. Is it ever stressful being the assumed authoritative voice um, on, on feminism? Yeah. No, I mean, I write about this in the book. It's, um, But then it is for every woman with any kind of platform or prominence. And this is one of the things I talk about in the book, that like one of the things that men with any kind of prominence or platform don't realise is how much time, and as a sidebar, unpaid time, women spend being professional women if you have any platform the amount of requests you get for charities people needing help people needing advice people who are distressed um every time there's some kind of new feminist issue in the press you, you have to respond if you don't respond then you can get a lot of abuse for that like kind of you'll get people going oh, i know just Catelyn moran hasn't said anything about this issue it's like i was on the toilet and also i can't do all of feminism all the time like 
Believe me, if I have a great thought, I'll let you know. But you can't milk them out of me. I'm not some kind of an opinion cow. Like kind of, you know, these others run dry sometimes. Maybe I want to think about it for a while. How about that? So there is a constant pressure on you to just professionally be a woman at all times. Uh, but obviously on an amateur basis in that you're not being paid for it. So so that's stressful and you feel the responsibility. And, you know, if you fuck up, people really know about it. And that's awful. Um, but at the same time, I was the eldest of eight kids and I'm a mum. And, I, you know, I quite like a bit of responsibility. I'm like, yeah, no, I don't know. Generally, I think I'm, you know, I can be sensible and useful. And, like, you know, I'd, I'd like to be in the game, please. I'd, you know, I'd like to chip in and go, I've got an idea. I've had a thought. It's all going to be okay. Do you think you could just remind somebody of the title of the book, which has the script of what to say to children in distress? Yes. So the author's called Eva Musby. And I think it, I think it's just called Coping with Eating Disorders. But if you if you go on Amazon or whatever book site you go on, it's Eva Musby, M-U-S-B-Y. And, uh, and, and whoever you are, I'm sending you the biggest hug and the biggest love. Like you're doing an incredible thing and I feel your pain and I hope it all ends up all right for you. Um, somebody says, um, I love the 50-50 split you have with your husband. How did you achieve this? <laughs> oh, well, I'm so lucky. I mean, he was a feminist before me. So he's a writer and he used to have a column on Time Out. And he wrote a column in like 1995 about what was then becoming a trend of women having Brazilian, total Brazilian waxes. And he wrote a piece just going... I don't understand. Like kind of just like his, his whole thing is just boggling and like kind of, you know, he wasn't being, oh, I'm a man. He was just like, I don't literally explain it to me. Like men aren't doing this and you, you will talk about how painful it is and I don't understand. And, uh, and it caused a hoo-ha. And uh, it was the first time I'd seen anyone, because feminism was quite quiet at that point. And it was the first time I'd seen anyone just talking about the lived reality of women and how that might be part of a wider political social thing. And I was like, oh, okay, this is, maybe I should be doing this rather than my husband and he's just very you know he his his book came out last year broken greek uh, which is his memoir of his childhood and in it he describes very vividly the dynamic between his parents and he at a very early age decided he did not want to be like his father um so i i was the beneficiary of that he was very from day one just kind of like no i love you you're amazing we, it must be equal but it would be completely unfair otherwise but then as i write in the book women still have a greater awareness of lots of things like the eternal to-do list that every woman has in their head and it's only very recently that I realized and rather than sort of crashing around the house sighing and being really martyred that I'm the only one that's noticed that a door handle's fallen off or that something at the bottom of the stairs needs to be taken to the top of the stairs that's why I put it there but what I needed to do was buy a whiteboard put it in the kitchen right at the top of it everything that's in mum's head right now and then write everything that's on my to-do list on the whiteboard and at the bottom write Everyone in this house must pick three of these jobs every week and have completed them by Friday because I'm not doing everything. And that changed everything. I am so chilled and happy now. The house is so happy. We're having so much sex because we've got time and I fancy it because I'm not angry. It's like this whiteboard, this $4.99 whiteboard from Ryan's has changed my life. So every woman out there, put your to-do list on a whiteboard and put it in the kitchen and get everybody else to chip in. It'll change your life. You need to get onto Ryman's because they're going to owe you when these boards are going. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you do to keep looking at the funny side of life? Thank you for being so articulate and honest about the real inner woman. Oh, bless you. Um, well, I mean, you every couple of years there's a, this debate, and it reared up again recently that women can't be funny, that women aren't funny, and uh, you know, I usually respond by just doing a list that goes on for like twenty Twitter threads about all the women that have been funny, and the main thing is that like of course women are funny we have to be 
have you looked at the fucking world? Have you been a woman? Like, if you're not laughing at this shit, you will go insane. So it's it's not difficult at all. And also, if you ever need to laugh, whenever something is happening to women or is seen to be an issue of feminism, if you just flip it, reverse it, and imagine that men were talking about this or men were having to deal with this mad bullshit or that men were arguing amongst each other about how to deal with these things, you'll lie on the floor crying laughing. <laughs> Because the, the disjunction, the, the absolute disparity of the idea of men worrying about their legs or their necks uh, or whether they were too much or too quiet or said too many things or were too pushy uh, will just make you howl with laughter. I mean. <laughs> I love that someone has just written in capital letters, whiteboard genius, exclamation mark. <laughs> that will be the name of my third album, Whiteboard Genius. It'll be a drill album of screaming noises and mummy shouting, thank you for taking things off my to-do list. Do you have any suggestions for actually, you know, someone's asking about the women's union. You said, you know, you are taking sort of wealthy people out and getting them pissed. Do you have, you know, how can people help get that sort of thing started? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess read, like, just read a little bit about the, the history of unions and how people started their own unions and their own branches and stuff. And then, because, I mean, it can, it can happen one of two ways. It can either happen top down. Someone goes, there's a women's union. Do you want to join, make your own branches? Or women in their local areas could go, I'm forming a union. That's the, the history of the union movement in this country is just very often people in a community going, we're going to form a union. And then you make your alliances with other ones. You meet and how union work always works is you start, you, you turn up, you, you gather your people together, you go, what are our problems? What do we need to discuss? You consciousness raise, then you start doing solutions, then you formulate it. And then you, you start networking and, and sharing these solutions. And that that's what women do in an informal capacity anyway. And the idea that you could do it in a, in a structure where by paying union dues, women could finally be paid to be activists and do this kind of work, which would suddenly make it so much more diverse and inclusive because it does tend to generally be white middle-class women who do a lot of the activism because they just have more time. Um, you know, I mean, it's, I've got the whole plan. We're going to, instead of, we peg the union dues at the amount that you spend every week on takeaway coffee and tea. And so when you join the union, you'd be given a women's union thermos flask that would have the logo of the women's union on it. And you would, and we would send you fair trade tea and coffee and you would make your tea and coffee every day. You would have it in the women's union flask. So you've still got your tea and coffee out on the go, but you're just instead giving the money that you would have spent on takeaway ones to the women's union. So it wouldn't affect your budget at all. You've got a sexy thermos flask. Also having a thermos flask will change your life. There is no greater superpower than having tea in your rucksack. You're like, I can tea anytime I want. I can walk down the street eating tea. I can, I can go on a hill and have tea. I am free to tea. So I, I got it all quite minutely planned. <laughs> this is where, yeah, we'll, we'll, let's do it. And everyone who's obviously listening in now is, is, I presume, you know, invited to join. I just have to say thank you so much to everyone who, who's kind of signed in. Sorry if I didn't get to your questions. And Catherine, thank you very, very much for joining us. It's so lovely to have you. Oh, Hannah, thank you so much. You are an absolute darling. Everybody have a great night. Enjoy lockdown. Yay! This week's show starred Catelyn Moran and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The series is produced by me and edited by John Doughty. Every night of the week, we're streaming guest stars just like Catelyn straight to your devices. You can find out who at howtoacademy.com. Next week, journalist Malcolm Gladwell is here to tell us how to make a good first impression. Until then, I've been Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.